When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll talk about the American military. It's the most massive, the most technologically advanced, and the best funded fighting force in the world. But in the last 15 years of constant war, it has won nothing. Tom Engelhart will comment. He's the legendary editor who created and runs the Tom Dispatch website, and his new book is A Nation Unmade by War. Also, Trump and Syrian refugees. During Obama's last year, about 10,000 were admitted to the United States. So far this year, the number is 11. Wendy Perlman will explain she interviewed hundreds of Syrian refugees across the Middle East and Europe. Her new book is We Crossed a Bridge and It Trembled, Voices from Syria. But first, Ireland voted on abortion on Friday. 66% voted yes, 34% said no. Katha Pollitt was there. Of course, she's a poet, essayist, an award-winning columnist for the nation, and author most recently of the book Pro Reclaiming Abortion Rights. We reached her today at home in Manhattan. Katha, welcome back. Hi, John. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, I thought the vote in Ireland was supposed to be close. Yeah, um, that's what everybody said, not just the polls and the press, but the organizers for both sides. It was uh, astounding that it was so decisive. And was it that women voted yes on abortion and men voted no? No. And, you know, a number of people thought that's what would happen, that Men were saying things, or men were quoted as saying, 
Oh, it has nothing to do with me. <laughs> Someone really needs to explain the facts of life to these people. Uh, and I'll let the women decide. But in, in real life, women voted 70% in favor and men voted 65% in favor. Wow. And men did go to the polls. And I would imagine young people voted yes overwhelmingly and old people voted no overwhelmingly. Well, uh, there again, the under-24s were practically unanimous in support, but repeal carried every age demographic except for the over-65s. So you and, I, <laughs> you, and I, you and I are out of step with our, with our generation. Here. You and I, dot, dot, dot. The strange thing about the Irish law is that it's part of the Constitution. The Irish Constitution has an amendment banning abortion. How did that happen? When did that happen? It, it happened in 1983. Abortion was always illegal, but then they decided they need to make it super illegal, lest the pro-choice camel get its head, get, got its head under the tent because abortion was legal, being legalized in so many places. So they uh, subjected this amendment, the Eighth Amendment, to a referendum, and uh, it carried two to one. It was sort of the reverse of this situation. And I should say that the Eighth Amendment, what it does is it places the life of the woman and the life of the quote, unborn, unquote, at equal value. And that led to situations like the horrible case of Savita Halapanavar, who died uh, in 2012 in a hospital because they wouldn't complete her ongoing miscarriage, even though it was an unviable fetus. It was never going to live. But they, had, they said, we have to wait till it doesn't have a heartbeat. Mm-hmm. And by that time... She, uh, you know, was completely, completely overrun with sepsis, and she died. Uh, I mean, this, and this took days of her begging, her and her husband begging for an abortion, and them saying, no, we have to wait. So what did Irish women who wanted abortions do between the 1983 uh, and, and now? Well, if they could afford it, and they had a passport, and other things fell into place, they went to the UK or the Netherlands, and if they were immigrants, say, who didn't have a passport, asylum seekers, or if they didn't have the money, or they couldn't, you know, get everything together to get to the UK, they had a baby. Except, recently, the use of the abortion pill became very common in Ireland even though the customs was impounding them when they would come in from Women on Web, which is an organization that uh, distributes abortion pills. But enough got through one way or another so that it was quite a significant thing. You were there when the vote was counted. What was that like? Does everybody watch on TV like here in the U.S.? No, it's so great what they do there. Everything is paper ballots. And the day they and so we've everyone voted on Friday, and then on Saturday morning, these big boxes of paper ballots are brought to a central place. The RD, in this case, it was the RDS, which is a big sort of equestrian center a lot of the time. And they open the boxes and they count them out, and then they they put them they put them into piles of yes and no, um, and it's so much fun. There are people that are doing the counting and people who are watching the counting. 
And I think we need to have that system here. We need to go back to paper ballots. A much, it's a much more open system. And it's also a much more community kind of a thing. It isn't that you, you, know, you stop voting and then you go home and it's on TV and Steve Karnacki is telling you <laughs> what to think. So this is like a spectator sport where you're sitting in the stands watching the people counting the paper ballots? No, you mill about, you drink coffee, you talk to your friends, <laughs> you try to keep track of your children who are running about. It's very jolly, actually. And interestingly, when I went, this is called the tally, and when I went, this was in Dublin, it was only yes campaigners who were there, yes people. And I kept looking and I thought, I want to interview some no people. And I found this little knot of four, three young people and an older woman, and I asked if I could interview them, and the older woman said to me, I am all out of words. A <laughs> <laughs> little bit of the history of the campaign. How did it get started, and what kind of arguments did the yes side uh, run on? Well, you know, older women have been working on this for years. The women who, in the 70s and the 80s, were campaigning for birth control. I mean, the, Ireland is really has been behind the curve on everything having to do with women for a long time. Um, but there was always very strong women fighting for reproductive rights and other rights. So they've been working forever. And then after Savita Halapanavar died, who I mentioned earlier, that really shocked people. And there were pictures of her everywhere, this beautiful Indian woman in a sari. And, you know, she had uh, her whole, you know, this was a wanted child. She had everything to look forward to. And there she is dead completely unnecessarily. This never would have happened in another country. That kind of jump-started the whole thing again. There were big marches and candlelight vigils. And nobody, I mean, it was just impossible to justify. And the only way that the no campaigners, the supporters of the Eighth Amendment could justify was by saying, oh, well, this didn't have anything to do with abortion. Savita's death was just a medical mix-up. <laughs> that didn't, that didn't, wasn't very persuasive. And let's talk a little bit more about the opponents of abortion rights. I guess in Ireland that means the Catholic Church. How active, how fierce were the priests? Well, you know, the priests were not that fierce. They, I think, did not want they didn't want to lose, too, obviously. <laughs> also, the Catholic Church, you know, I have never met so many anti-clerical people as I have in Ireland. Mm. Um, they lost everything with the pedophilia scandal. And also there was an important bishop, Bishop Casey, who had a secret family. And so there was just this tremendous sense of betrayal. And, you know, unlike in our own benighted country, the Catholic Church controls a lot. It controls, like, over 90% of all the schools. It's very hard to find a secular school to send your child to. They control the, they control the hospitals. They, you know, they're a very powerful organization, but they have lost a lot of legitimacy. And I think they're, they're really kind of licking their wounds now. I think they're, you know, it's really bad for them. I read in, the, uh, in the New York Times that... The uh, hierarchy decreed that priests should not give sermons saying that people who voted yes would be denied communion. Right. I mean, there was this rumor that they were doing that, and there was a sermon that was very, a couple of sermons that were very 
critical of people who voted, who were preparing to vote yes, and people walked out of church. Hmm. Um, it's really, I mean, Ireland is really not the way we think of it, because we tend to think of it as extremely religious, extremely socially conservative, very rural. Now Ireland is two-thirds urban. It's not, it's not Bing Crosby anymore. <laughs> So uh, what's next? The constitutional amendment has been repealed. There's going to be a law now? How are they going to do this? Well, there's going to be uh, a law. And one of the things they did that was very smart was that before the vote, they said, okay, if, it's, if, this, if the Eighth Amendment is repealed, we're going to, we, the government, are going to put forward this law, which is abortion will be available on demand. I think it's mostly by pill for the first 12 weeks, and after that, uh, it's going to be very restricted, you know, to mental and health grounds uh, that have to be attested to by doctors and all that kind of thing. And there is an interesting feature is that there is no provision for abortion of genetically abnormal uh, fetuses, except for fatal fetal abnormality, which is one of the big issues here that women, you know, with these devastating diagnoses of fetuses that wouldn't had no chance of life, who had to go to the UK or bear a dead, you know, a dead baby or a dying baby, just horrible. So anyway, the law is actually going to be, it's in line with Europe. In fact, it's a little on the conservative end for Europe. It's not what we have here. If we actually had you know, in the states where we where we actually follow Roe v. Wade, sort of. Well, let's let's compare abortion politics in the Republic of Ireland with the United States. You've seen both. What do you think? I think that there will be women in Ireland who will continue to suffer if they can't get to the UK. I mean, twelve weeks, which is really ten weeks. You know, it's twelve weeks from your last menstrual period, but you usually get pregnant a few weeks after that. Not everybody even knows they're pregnant at that point, I mean, which is hard to believe, but true. I feel that it kind of makes people make a decision maybe before they're ready. And then there are people whose circumstances change. So there's going to be people that are left out of the Irish solution. But it will cover a lot of people. In the United States, about 90% of abortions are before the 12th week. Well, that's a lot of people. Yeah. And a good feature about it in Ireland that we don't have here is that the abortion pill can be distributed, distributed, I mean prescribed, by any GP, whereas in our country, although we could do that too, in fact, it's, there are many, many states, like for example, Arkansas has just banned abortion by pill for no medical reason at all, and you will not find GPs throughout the land giving it out. You and I have talked so many times here when there's bad news on abortion rights. What was it like when good news came along, such big good news? It was ecstasy. I went to uh, Dublin Castle for the formal, uh, later on Saturday, is a for, for the formal announcement of the outcome of the vote. And th- there was an enormous loud, joyful crowd of all people who were packed, and I really mean packed into the courtyard. You could hardly move. And everybody waited for two and a half hours, and it rained. (laughs) Um, And people were so happy. 
And I think there's just a feeling that now we're part of, we're really part of Europe. That old idea of Ireland as this very restricted, religious, authoritarian state uh, is gone. Katha Pollitt was there. Katha wrote about the abortion vote in Ireland for thenation.com. Katha, thanks so much for reporting for us today. Thanks so much for having me, John. Now it's time to talk about America's wars. The American military is the most massive, the most technologically advanced, and the best-funded fighting force in the world. But in the last 15 years of constant war, it has won nothing. That's the theme of the new book by Tom Engelhart. He's the legendary editor who created and runs the Tom Dispatch website. His earlier books include The End of Victory Culture, a book about the Cold War, which had a huge impact on me. His new book is called A Nation Unmade by War. Tom Engelhart, welcome back. Hey, John. I, you know, I think I may put, pick up that book. It sounds interesting. <laughs> well, you say the American military is the best-funded fighting force in the world. Of course, another way of saying that is that it's the most expensive how expensive is it? Ah, uh, now that's an interesting question. I mean, I, I, there's a, an expert who writes for Tom Dispatch, uh, William Hartung, and and he figured he figured up what went into the whole national security budget. Now that does include our our staggering 17 major intelligence outfits and so on and so forth, but. The figure was a trillion dollars a year. Not every bit of that is, is the military, but then again, there's some military money that goes, goes into the energy department for nuclear stuff. It's a lot of money. It's a staggering amount of money. It's the sort of money that if, they, if you were to begin to put it into American infrastructure, we would have, hey, high-speed rail and highways without holes and whatever. It would be stunning. But, uh, but it's the one, I would call it infrastructural, the one kind of infrastructure into which Congress will put money incessantly in a bipartisan fashion. There is nothing else. You say never has a great power in its imperial prime proven so incapable of achieving its aims. What are the aims of America's wars and where were they first articulated? I mean, it's actually a difficult question to answer, partially for this reason. I, I, we have to return to the, in essence, the days after 9-11 yes. to answer this question. And the 9-11 triggered something here. I mean, in, in, in the Bush administration, if you remember them and all the neocons of that moment, if you remember, at the time of 9-11, we were still... Well, we were calling ourselves the sole superpower, the last superpower. You know, we were the one who had won. The Soviet Union had imploded in 1991. We were all that was left. And the, the crew who, who made up the, the, the top levels of the, uh, the Bush administration, when this happened, almost immediately, I remember Donald Rumsfeld was reported in the, in essence, the ruins of the Pentagon, because it had been hit by one of those planes, saying, I still remember the quote, sweep it up, sweep it all up to his aides. They wrote it down, and it was later reported. And what he, of course, meant was, he already grasped, okay, uh, Al-Qaeda, so on, but he was already thinking, and so were they all of more. He was thinking of Saddam Hussein in Iraq. He was thinking of, the, the, those guys, when they, when they, almost immediately declared war on a small group of jihadis. They were already imagining a world in which they were the last 
imperial power, and they could have it all. So the initial aims of what was almost instantly called a first a war and then a global war on terror was a kind of Pax Americana, first in the greater Middle East, and then, of course, elsewhere. But I mean, what's been interesting in this period, and that's what you started asking the question about, is that unlike past imperial powers at their heights, we've been remarkably unable to use our military to control, to create a kind of an order. The British Empire, the Roman Empire, I mean, it was a brutal order, but it was a kind of order. We have instead, in, in well, we're now past, what, 16 years of war from, from, from you know, October uh, 2001, the beginning of the Afghan invasion. We have basically created disorder. I mean, in a way, I've always thought of this as the war not on terror, but in a way for terror, because it's created the conditions for spreading terror outfits across a significant part of the planet. And the key to understanding the creation of disorder, the key concept, I think, is blowback, which was first articulated, I think, by one of the great writers for Tom Dispatch, the late Chalmers Johnson. Let's talk about blowback. Yes. He was the first person to write about it. I was uh, then a, a book editor when he when he wrote his book Blowback. I, I did his book, and when it came out before 9/11, you know, the, I still remember the reviews. Formerly eminent professor and CIA consultant, now basically ranting maniac. And then, of course, 9/11 hit, and people went, "Oh my God!" And it became a national bestseller, and so on and so forth. But his idea was that that these operations around the world that the American people knew in essence next to nothing or nothing about that sooner or later, they came, in a way, they came back home. Donald Trump, without the invasion of Iraq, the greatest disaster of this period out there in terms of war and foreign policy, without the invasion of Iraq, I think his, the election of, of this strange character would have been inconceivable. He is blowback. Donald Trump is blowback. Donald That's Trump is blowback. So what, we, what started with uh, George W. Bush and Dick Cheney in the wake of 9-11, you say leads by a complicated path to the election of Donald Trump. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about how you think that happened. Oh, well, I think if you go back to the 2016 election campaign, one of the things that struck me, it struck me during the campaign, and I wrote about it then, to go back to his key slogan which is MAGA, Make America Great Again. Yeah. I still remember Hillary Clinton's people for millions of dollars in consulting fees coming up with the, the monstrous response to that of uh, Make America Whole Again, the worst slogan ever created in history. But Make America Great Again, it was a great, it was an old age of Reagan slogan in a way. Trump picked it up. He grasped this early. After Romney's defeat, he began, He, I think he actually tried to trademark that. That had gone into his head, and it was effective. It rang a bell in the country, and it rang a bell because everybody focused on make America great, but they didn't focus on the key word, which was, again, he was the only American politician in 2016 who didn't feel obliged to say that we were the most exceptional, indispensable, greatest nation ever in history. And that was obligatory. It didn't matter whether you were Mario Rubio or, or Obama. I mean, Obama used it indispensable endlessly. It was, uh, it was a 1999 phrase of uh, former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright. Trump said, no, he said, make America great again. That meant he was the only one who claimed it wasn't great then. And that rang a bell out there in the heartlands of the country for good reason, because they already felt 
why they felt, in essence, the blowback it was the blowback not just from the wars, but also the blowback from from our new Gilded Age, which which goes with the wars in a certain way. So you say the American wars haven't achieved anything. Trump did promise during the campaign, I quote, we're going to beat ISIS very, very quickly, folks. Now he says he's fulfilled that promise, that the Islamic State in Syria is basically defeated. I wonder if you agree that the United States has defeated ISIS. Well, I think the United States defeated what what they were calling the the kind of pseudo-caliphate there. I mean, I think that is... Yes, ISIS no longer holds territory except in a small part of Syria near the Iraqi border. Clearly don't have much. But that was always a short-term thing, and they were never going to last. In the process of that, ISIS is a, uh, it's a, it's a global brand. There are ISIS branches now in Afghanistan and the Philippines. Those bombers in, um, in Indonesia recently were, seem to have been ISIS supporters. And there's, a, there's an ISIS branch in Libya. Uh, there, there's their ISIS style now down in, towards, towards Niger. If you remember the, that incident in Niger last October where four Green Berets died. In other words, yes, that's gone. But, but, but the other striking thing is it almost doesn't matter that that's gone. The U.S., whether it's Afghanistan, Syria, Libya, all of this, uh, in, the, in the Trump era, all of this stuff is, once again, as it, as it was in the Obama era and in the Bush era, it's being ramped up. More attacks in Somalia, more attacks in Yemen. Everything has gone up. And at the same time, the American people are paying remarkably little attention. This is a phenomenon of this whole period, not just of the Trump period. I mean, to give you one example, the, the Taliban, in the invasion of Afghanistan, the Taliban were driven out of their last, the last provincial capital they held early in 2002. Well, about a week ago, they took a, a provincial capital for a day. This, mm. is, this is 16 years later. What do you make of the, the greatest force in history, fighting the longest war in its history in Afghanistan for the second time since 1979, our second Afghan war. And 16 years later, the, the Taliban is, has grown stronger. But there are critics of the Pentagon budget in, in Congress and critics of our warfighting strategy, aren't there? Uh, in a modest sort of way, yes. I think it's accurate to say that even the, most of the significant critics in Congress are really arguing for a smaller increase, less of the more, a less muscular version of what's there now. They're not really arguing for something else. I mean, let's remember that Congress has largely, except for putting up money, Congress has been cut out of the war process. The idea that Congress is responsible for declaring war, is that, that went, that's, that's from another century. The last great empire might prove to be an empire of nothing at all. That's what Tom Engelhardt says in his new book, A Nation Unmade by War. Noam Chomsky calls it incisive, lucid, and brutally informative. Tom, thanks for this book. Thanks for everything you do at Tom Dispatch. And thanks for talking with us today. Thank you so much, John. I enjoyed it. Now it's time to talk about Syrian refugees as the war in Syria continues. More than 5 million people have fled Syria since the civil war broke out there seven years ago. Most of them have gone to nearby countries in the Middle East. In 2016, the United States admitted around 
15,000 Syrian refugees. That was Obama's last year. This year, with Trump as president, in the first three months, we've admitted 11, 11 Syrian refugees. For comment, we turn to Wendy Perlman. She teaches at Northwestern. She speaks fluent Arabic. She spent more than 20 years studying and living in Lebanon, Jordan, Egypt, Israel, the West Bank, and Gaza. She's written for the Washington Post, Harper's, and The Nation. Her new book, based on interviews with hundreds of ordinary Syrians across the Middle East, Europe, and the United States, is called We Crossed a Bridge and It Trembled, Voices from Syria. It's out now in paperback. Wendy Perlman, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Well, we have to start with Donald Trump, whose original travel ban prohibited all Syrians from entering the United States. Now there are a few Let's take up Trump's argument. He says we need, this is a quote, to keep radical Islamic terrorists out of the United States of America. We don't want them here. We want to ensure we aren't admitting into our country the very threats that our men and women are fighting overseas, close quote Donald Trump. So we need what he calls extreme vetting of Muslim refugees, especially Syrians, because because of ISIS. ISIS, of course, I-S-I-S, Islamic State inside Syria is what ISIS stands for. ISIS members from Syria, he says, could be disguising themselves as refugees to sneak into the United States. So that's why we need extreme vetting to keep terrorists out. What do you think about this argument? What do you know about what it takes for a Syrian to, to get refugee status in the United States? Well, I think that what it takes for a Syrian to get refugee status or anyone to get refugee status and be resettled in the United States is already to go through extreme vetting. That extreme vetting is the status quo. Already there exists years of interviews, of background checks, of waiting, of paperwork, of all sorts of verifications. When you talk to asylum officers and resettlement officers, they say that already in existence um, has long been the most extreme vetting they could possibly imagine. And it only takes the most uh, minimal knowledge of the resettlement program to know that those are really false accusations. Trump's ambassador to the United Nations, Nikki Haley, recently said that the Syrians she has met in refugee camps uh, do not want to come to the United States. Uh, Quoting from Nikki Haley, not one of the many that I talked to ever said we want to go to America. They want to stay as close to Syria as they can, close quote. You've talked to hundreds of Syrian refugees. Did any of them tell you they'd like to come to America? Uh, yes. I think that the, that Ambassador Haley's statement is also a, a misrepresentation of a very complex reality. Uh, most refugees want to return home, and Syrian refugees are no exception. People would like nothing more than to return to their, their homes and their reality. The loss, the pain, um, the sheer earthquake it means in people's lives. So refugees do not flee easily. They flee because they fear for their lives. They flee because they worry that 
if they stay one day longer, they might be killed by a chemical weapon or a barrel bomb or be arrested and die in a dungeon prison. Or they've come to realize that there's just no life um, where they are, that they might be conscripted into the army. So it's only the most severe dangers that force people to, to leave their homes. And once people leave, uh, you can imagine that there's a lingering desire to go back. It's not easy to be a foreigner in a new land, to um, perhaps not have legal status, to live in the most uh, dire of conditions, perhaps in a tent or a bare apartment, to start life over. But what you have in the Syrian situation is after more than seven years of a brutal war and all types of violence used by a brutal regime that's been willing to do everything it needs to do and can do to stay in power, and a regime that has strong allies like Russia and Iran uh, supporting it militarily, economically, politically, what you have for many refugees is the reality that their homes no longer exist. Their towns and neighborhoods and streets no longer exist. Um, and in addition, for many refugees who are fleeing the Assad regime, there's facing a reality that that Assad regime seems to be consolidating power. More and more you have people saying it seems that the regime has won. It is reconquering slowly the territory that slipped from its control um, during the past seven years. So for refugees, many of them, there is it's unthinkable to return to live under the Assad regime again. If they participated in any sort of dissent, there is no credible commitment that they can believe that if they return to Syria, they will not be killed by the same regime. They will not be arrested, they will not be tortured, they will not be disappeared. And even for those who are not active opponents participating in protest and so forth, there's still a tremendous amount of fear. What if they once posted something on Facebook that was critical of the regime? What if they have a friend or a relative who was critical of the regime? What if they're from a town or community or ethnic or religious group that is perceived as being critical? They also fear that if they go back, there will be no protection for their safety. So surveys that are done of Syrian refugees say, as Nikki Haley suggests, yes, they would like nothing more to return. But they also frequently say that they would not return unless there is some type of political transition leading to a post-Assad future, and they will not return unless there are some basic guarantees for their physical safety. And it is very difficult that it can be imagined it can be guaranteed under the current political circumstances and as long as Bashar al-Assad is in power. And that's why many refugees see no alternative but to try to start their lives over. And in those border countries that you mentioned, where there are currently about 5.6 million Syrian refugees, the largest number in Turkey, and smaller numbers in Jordan, in Lebanon, even some in Iraq and in Egypt, the conditions are tremendously dire. These are not countries that uh, recognize refugee status and asylum status for Syrian refugees. Rather, they're treated as guests. The overwhelming majority work in the informal economy, where they have exploitative conditions, very low wages, often unsafe conditions, no legal recourse. Some are in refugee camps. The overwhelming are urban refugees where they're struggling to pay rent in apartments and houses. There are hundreds of thousands of children who are not going to school, instead who are working full-time, sometimes 12, 14 hours in factories, in fields, in sweatshops. Their lives are the definition of precarious, unsafe. For many refugees in that situation, yes, of course, many would want to seek more stable 
opportunity elsewhere, which is why you had so many risking their lives in these inflatable boats to cross the Mediterranean and hope to get to Europe, and why you would have many, many, many more come to the United States and come to Canada and come to North America if they were allowed. Let's talk about your interviews for this book. How many weeks and months have you spent interviewing refugees and where did you find them? So I began doing these interviews in 2012. Um, I spent about uh, a month and a half, two months in Jordan interviewing Syrian refugees there. And then I continued to interview Syrian refugees for the next four years. So I returned to Jordan in 2013 and then spent several months in Turkey. And then I returned to Turkey in 2015 and 2016, moved on to Lebanon, did some interviews even in the United Arab Emirates. And then as a large wave of, of refugees moved on to um, Europe in 2015, I also moved on and did interviews with Syrian refugees in Denmark, Sweden, and Germany, and also did some interviews with Syrian refugees in the United States. So it was many weeks, many months, over a period of many years. And that time frame was useful because it really allowed me to see how refugee stories evolved over time. It allowed me to access people of different walks of life. And in going to different countries, I was able to see how the refugee experience was different depending on where people wound up. My interviews were open-ended. They were usually just uh, a space in which I asked someone to talk about his or her life, what this Syrian conflict had been like for him or her, and also about life before the conflict began, which was very important to help me put the Syrian uprising and then the Syrian war in a larger historical perspective. One last thing, the title, We Crossed a Bridge and It Trembled. What does the title mean? So the title is taken directly from one of these testimonials. It was so important for me to write a book that was exclusively in Syrians' own words. I collected these testimonials, and my job was that of a curator. I put them in a sequence. I, I edited them for readability and for length and created a mosaic of stories, a sort of series of conversations. It was important for me that the title would also be taken directly from those words. So the title is taken from a testimonial from a man, a man describing a huge demonstration in spring 2011. This was the period when there were mass demonstrations, hundreds of thousands of people peacefully, nonviolently, without arms, going out into the streets and calling for freedom, calling for dignity, calling for change. And he describes one of these protests in which the crowd was so large, he said, that they crossed a bridge in his town. They crossed a bridge and it trembled under the weight of so many people. So it's a literal description of this mass shows of people's power at the height of a people's popular uprising. And I think it's so important to remember that what is now a war and a refugee crisis began a popular uprising. So it's a literal description, but it's also a metaphor. I think that Syrians have crossed many bridges. They've crossed the bridges from authoritarianism to revolution, from revolution to war, and eventually from the homeland to exile. And all of those bridges have left Syrians trembling under the, the sheer gravity of this tumult, this loss, this violence, this pain. And I hope my book 
for those who read it, will remind them of, of the gravity of the humanitarian catastrophe, of the hope of that popular uprising that in many ways was abandoned by the world, and will shake people and encourage them to do more, to do more in solidarity with Syria, to do more in solidarity with Syrian refugees, to demand different policies from our own government and decision makers, and to uh, do all they can to see an end to this war and uh, the creation of a, a Syria in which Syrians can indeed return to their homeland and their country, but live there with freedom, security, and dignity. The book is We Crossed a Bridge and It Trembled, Voices from Syria. The author is Wendy Perlman. Wendy, thanks for this book, and thanks for talking with us today. My pleasure. Thank you. Finally, a word about this week's episode of Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast, our sister podcast at The Nation, hosted by the magazine's sports editor. This week, Dave talks about the NFL's new policy, fining owners if players kneel during the national anthem. He calls it an unholy mess created by unaccountable billionaires. Also, Dave has some choice words about Trump's decision to pardon the legendary boxer Jack Johnson. That's this week on the Edge of Sports podcast, where sports and politics collide. Tune in every Tuesday at thenation.com slash edgeofsports. Start Making Sense, the Nation podcast, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is the nation's engagement editor. Katrina Vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and now at Google Play. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.